I don't know about you, but that was a wonderful experience. I know for me, one, you know, among all the different varieties of music out there, one of my favorite things to do, especially when writing a sermon, is to listen to some good hard bop jazz from the 50s and 60s, some John Coltrane, some Sonny Rollins, um, anything by Miles Davis. I know he's not a saxophonist, but, you know, his quintet and his sextet and, you know, his group that he played with. And listening to Stefan for me is like listening to a smooth, rich saxophone. And so I, I pray that that blessed your heart as much as it blessed mine. So um, <clears throat> this morning, the title for our message today is the good news, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and our big idea that we're going to be exploring today is that through faith in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. Our passage this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. And this morning, we are launching into a brand new series that is going to explore the core message that defines and drives everything that has to do with the Christian faith. For some of us, that might seem like a bit of a getting back to basics kind of series. And for others, this might be something completely new, a new thing that you've never heard about before. And so you are welcome here at the table this morning. Wherever you land on that spectrum, though, I want to challenge each and every one of you who is watching this video right now. Don't just tune out. Don't switch to autopilot thinking, ah, oh, I've heard that all before. Oh, yeah, that, that verse, I've read that, I've heard that. Yep, same old, same old, I got that. Instead, I want to challenge you to engage, to start up conversations in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, if you get to go to them, if you're not uh, homeward bound, as it were. And to lean into this topic that we'll be exploring for the next couple of months. Because I believe that as we engage with and learn together as community, you and I will grow in how we relate to God as well as to each other. And maybe through this simple unified pursuit, we will be prepared to enter into a new and fresh season in the days ahead. Are you ready? All right, let's get started. So now in a little over a month... I will be turning 33 years old. It's going to be my Jesus year, which is a big milestone. And while I'm sure that this will, year will be a, one I will never forget, how many of you can relate to that? I want to take you back to a time, though, when I was 24 years old. I was rounding out my first year of Bible college, and my wife Angie and I, we were living in Milwaukee at the time, in this great little duplex apartment with a palm tree outside. It was really exotic and cool. We were serving at this church in Clackamas on the worship team there, and God was doing an overhaul in my life like you wouldn't believe. But in the middle of that very formative season for me, there was this moment that I will never forget. 
I came home from working my shift at a local coffee shop called Windhorse Coffee and Tea. If you've never been there, this is for free. If, if you've never been to Windhorse Coffee and Tea, I just encourage you to go out there because they make the best honey lavender lattes you've ever had. And if you've never had one, do yourself a favor. I digress. So anyway, I, I was going home and I knew that Angie would have gotten home ahead of me and um, that she would have had dinner ready. And that was an amazing time for us because we got to, you know, choose the things that we like to eat, not what our kids like to eat now. And it was beautiful. And my wife is beautiful. And I am truly blessed by uh, her cooking prowess and also by just the sheer fact that she is an amazing wife and partner in life. So anyway, there I was. And so I pulled up to my usual parking spot right underneath this sort of maple tree, some kind of tree that was along the the sidewalk there. And I noticed when I looked at our door that our door was kind of, the screen door was propped open a little bit, which piqued my curiosity. But I thought, "Eh, you know, that happens. But that was until I noticed that there was a little baggie that was taped to the glass of the screen door. And I looked a little closer as I started walking up the sidewalk. And inside this Ziploc bag was a little stick that had a display on one end that would either show a single line, right, or two parallel lines. And depending on what was on that screen would determine if it was telling me something negative or something positive. So I looked even closer, and clear as day, no mistaking it, Angie had just shared with me the good news, some good news rather, that would alter the course of my entire life. It was on that day that Angie told me she was pregnant with our first child. So like anyone who's excited, like any man who's excited at this kind of news, I ran in the door, I wrapped my arms around my bride, and we laughed and we cried and we celebrated that good news together. And while that wasn't the end of our pregnancy adventures that we were about to have, that's a story for another time, encountering that news changed everything for me. There are these kinds of moments for all of us, I think, some bigger than others, but these moments where we experience some piece of good news that makes a major impact on our lives. And for the next few moments that we share together, I want to talk to you about what the Bible calls the gospel which in the language it was originally written in, it literally means the good news. And so today we're not just talking about some news or the latest news that comes up on your news feed. How many of you know that that's some bad news recently? No, we are going to begin talking about the good news about Jesus Because unlike any other message in our world, the story about Jesus, the details about his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and all of what that really means for every person who's ever lived, the gospel has the power to change your life forever. 
Because through faith in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. And so with that in mind, let's look at the context for what we're about to read. Our passage today is from the Gospel of John in the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle John, who had the privilege of traveling with and following Jesus of Nazareth. At this point in history, the Jews were eagerly waiting and hoping for the promised Messiah to come and set all things to right and to establish God's kingdom here on this earth. And most people were expecting that this deliverer, this Messiah, was going to be some kind of military commander, some kind of political leader who would lead a revolt against the Romans and restore Israel as God's chosen people among the nations. But then there was Jesus, who had just started his ministry, who had just started preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God being at hand now, here, in that moment. And he was performing many signs and wonders to accompany that news. And so for the people who were paying attention, the people who were hungry, they were starting to get excited because they thought... Maybe, just maybe, this Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for all along. Or maybe not. Enter a man named Nicodemus, who, you know, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was someone who pulled a lot of weight among the Jewish leadership of the time. He was a teacher of God's word. He was someone who was respected in the community He was someone, though, that was paying attention, who was hungry, who wanted to know more about what God was doing through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, while they both happened to be in Jerusalem, Nicodemus wanted to set up a meeting between him and Jesus. And that appointment was scheduled at night, which would have been a time that they could meet without being interrupted whether by the crowds who were all jazzed and excited about Jesus and what he was doing, or the religious rulers who were upset by the things Jesus was teaching and doing. It's not a good PR move to start your ministry by driving the tax collectors and money changers out of the temple. It's not a good PR move. Jesus wasn't here to make friends in that way with the religious elite. So, meeting at night, Jesus and Nicodemus, they strike up this conversation in John chapter 3. And for the sake of our time today, we're not going to cover the first half of the conversation. That's definitely worth a read, and go back and go ahead and read that on your own time. But what I'd like to do is I want us to plant ourselves like a fly on the wall right in the middle of this talk, because it's here that we find an incredible summary of the gospel. So as we go to the scriptures and we lean in to listen to what God has to say to us this morning, we come with two main questions. The first is, what is the gospel? Maybe put another way, we could say, how do we define the gospel? What's a good definition? And the second is like it, And is the next step in that progression is 
Why does it still matter? Does the gospel still matter today in 2020? So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 21. Jesus speaking, he says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In in answer to our first question, what is the gospel? I think if we were to summarize what we just read, maybe a good way of defining the gospel would be to say it this way. That through faith in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. I'll say that again. Through faith in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. And so the first thing that that means for us is that, number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus offers healing to the hurt caused by our sin. Jesus offers healing to the hurt caused by our sin. In verse 14, Jesus made a reference to an obscure story from Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. Here's how it went down. So in Numbers chapter 21, we learn that along Israel's travels, there came a point where they grew impatient again. This was nothing new. This happened frequently throughout their journey, and you can read more about it in the first five books of the Bible. And, but anyway, so they grew impatient again. And so they spoke out against God and Moses, the leader who had been placed over them. And so in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, the people said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're asking God and Moses this. And continue on. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, for the record, right before this part of their story, God had just caused water 
to gush out of a large rock in the middle of the desert. And along the way, he had been providing them each and every day with this miraculous bread from from heaven that they called manna. And also, he was sending little quail birds for them to eat. So clearly, there's no food or water here, just loads of water and bread and birds. Maybe a good comparison to help us understand this attitude would be like when it's time for dinner in the Walls household. And Angie and I have just taken our time to make the most amazing dinner that is delicious and miraculous and maybe even reminiscent of when we had first gotten married and we were newlyweds. And we put the food in front of our children. And instead of receiving it with loving and gracious hearts, they instead, they push their plates away and they say, I don't want this. I want chips. The audacity of my children. The audacity of God's people. That they were acting like my kids who needed to have an attitude adjustment. You know, and because it's Father's Day, I feel like I can really empathize with what God, where he's at in that place of wanting to exact justice and consequence upon my children, right? Listen to what his response is in Numbers chapter 21, verse 6. Moses writes, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. My worst nightmare. Anyway, that's pretty intense. I mean, snakes on their own are pretty bad. That's my least favorite part of Indiana Jones. But snakes that are on fire? No, thank you. No, thank you very much. No. But then what happened in this story? Well, I'll tell you because we haven't turned there yet, and we're not going to today, but you can do that on your own. The people felt the effect of their sin. They were literally watching their fellow Israelites die when they would get bit by one of these crazy fire snakes. And they came under conviction of their rebellion. So then the people went to Moses in an act of repentance and they acknowledged their sin and asked Moses to mediate between God and them. And so then God instructed Moses to do something strange and This is what makes it obscure, and I guess there's a reason why God put it in the canon of Scripture. God instructs Moses to make a fiery bronze serpent. So, So a snake in the shape or made of bronze, and to put it on a pole, and to raise it up so that anyone who got bitten by one of these fiery snakes, if they looked up on that snake, that bronze serpent, they would live and not die. They would be healed. Now, why is Jesus talking with Nicodemus about this story? I would submit to you today that maybe it's because he's illustrating how the Messiah was meant to come for much more than just a political uprising. That at the core of the good news about the kingdom of God that he had been preaching about, God's mission was to deal with the root cause of all our problems, sin. The cause of our human condition, sin. 
in Scripture, whenever the alloy bronze is mentioned, it's talked about in relation to judgment and justice. And so this bronze object is representative of God's judgment against sin and unrighteousness. And so God had Moses fashion an object that would be that would representatively bear all the consequence of the people's rebellion. And when they would trust in what God had provided to save them, they would live and be healed. In the same way, (coughs) the Apostle Paul makes this statement in his second letter to the Corinthians. Talking about Jesus, he writes, He, meaning God, made him... Jesus, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What that means is that when Jesus was going to the cross, he was going to take on himself all the penalty for all that we deserve because of our sin. All the hurt, all the pain, all the shame from our sin. Jesus, the Messiah, was going to bear all of that on himself as a sacrifice so that if we would just look upon his sacrifice, seeing him lifted up like that bronze serpent in the wilderness, then we would truly live. Jesus even takes it a step further and says that not only will that mean healing for the hurt caused by our sin, but that it will actually bring us into something called eternal life, which is a succinct way of saying that we will be saved and get to live in God's kingdom forever. That's my, my paraphrase of that, that phrase. <clears throat> so the gospel reveals that Jesus offers healing to the hurt caused by our sin because it's God's plan that through faith in Jesus, we would be saved into God's kingdom. John chapter 3 also reveals that the gospel means, number two, that Jesus came to bring the dead to life. Jesus came to bring the dead to life. In verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world. It was the Father's love. It was his heart for you and for me that caused him to give his one and only son to this saving effort. I mean, I can't imagine giving up one of my three kids towards a saving effort for all of humanity, but God only had one. How much more of a sacrifice that would be for the father to send his son to a death sentence for us rebellious sinners. I don't know if you know this, but God's love is a never Stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for you. And even though it may not make sense to you, and it may feel like he doesn't know what he's bargaining for, like he doesn't know what he's getting into, the truth is that God saw how much it would cost to love you and to love me, and he still said that it was worth it. It is God's heart that no one would perish because of their sin. That's why he freely offers us this costly grace that was paid for with the blood of his son, 
Jesus. The only action that's required in is our belief. Continuing in verse 16, it says that whoever believes in him, which literally means whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background may be, all that God asks for you to do is to believe in his provision for salvation. Just like that bronze snake that he provided for the people of Israel in that moment. So, if belief is all that is required for, to receive this gift of salvation, then what does it mean when the Bible says, believe? The word for believe that's used here in John 3.16 And it's also used over 98 other times in the Gospel of John alone. I think he's trying to drive home a point. That word for believe in the Greek, it's pistuo, which means to have faith, to entrust, to have reliance upon. To believe is so much more than just a mental assent, where I can think about a thing, uh, a subject or a factor or whatever, and I, I accept those as facts and I say, okay, yep, that's true. And then I move on in life. To believe means that you are banking on the object of your belief. You are writing everything on that object. Have you ever found it hard to rely on someone else for something? Usually, it's because in some way, maybe that person has let you down in the past. Maybe it's because there's a character issue that you know about. Or maybe you've seen what they've brought to other situations, which has just resulted in bigger issues and bigger messes. For example, uh, the other night, we were getting ready for dinner again in the Walls household. I promise we do more than eat in our family, but it seems to be a common uh, value for us. There should always be food. And uh, it came to the time for us to set the table. And so Angie asked our son Reuben to take the plates to go set the table. And let me tell you, it was a huge leap of faith for me to believe in putting these plates in the hands of my son to carry them haphazardly for seven or eight feet to our table across a bunch of hardwood floor that I know can break perfectly good plates because it's happened before. And in that 30 seconds or so, I held my breath just waiting to hear a shattering plate. And I was looking away like, oh, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know. But wouldn't you know it? He got them to the table in one piece. It was amazing. And I was So relieved. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because, friends, I can tell you all the reasons why I would not typically trust my children with breakable things. Can I get an amen from all the dads and moms watching this service? Right? I can tell you all the reasons why. But with the same certainty that I can tell you that, I can also tell you that my God is faithful in keeping his promises. He is faithful and true. 
He is righteous and just. He is loving and compassionate. And he never lets you down. He never lets me down. He always follows through. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And again in the letter of James, the writer says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Which, in layman's terms, means God does not change. God is faithful. You can count on him. You can take his promises to the bank. He is faithful to do it. You see, we don't have to approach God's gift of salvation like it's a trick or that somehow he's not going to follow through this time. We don't need to wait for the other shoe to drop. He is trustworthy. We can count on him. And even when our earthly fathers fail, and they do, God, our Heavenly Father, never does. So even though we may be apprehensive at first at believing that it's even possible that God's gift of His Son for eternal life could be good for us, friends, it is the best decision you will ever make in your life to put that faith, to entrust your faith into God's gift of grace. This reminds me of a great quote by Billy Graham's grandson named Tulian Chavidian, who has had to walk through his own mess of life at times, where he says, Only the gospel can truly save you. The gospel doesn't make bad people good, it makes dead people alive. That is the purpose of the gospel. That we would be transformed by his power and grace, not from being bad to good, but being brought from death to life, from being perishing to flourishing, from dying to thriving. Oh, how we need that truth in our lives today. That Jesus came to bring us, the dead, back to life. Colossians 2.13 says, You and me, you were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. When we believe in God's one and only Son, through faith in him, in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. And so the gospel also means... Number three, if you're taking notes, Jesus made a way for us to be with God by the cross. Jesus made a way for us to be with God by the cross. In the early pages of Scripture, oh my, huh, here we go. In the book of Genesis, it describes how God created the heavens and the earth, how he put all the universe together and how he made this girl good, <laughs> this good world that we see around us. The first chapter of Genesis even goes so far as to say that we were made in the image and likeness of God himself. He patterned us after himself. 
And with each new addition to the created order, God called it good. Which means that it was whole and complete. It was lacking in nothing. God did not create a broken world. He created the world to be flourishing and growing and display the greatness of his glory. It was at that time when the first humans, Adam and Eve, had unhindered access to their creator. Nothing was standing between them and God. They could walk up to God and just have a conversation with him. They could talk with him. They could hang out with him. And I know that that's a little bit informal and a little bit hard for us to comprehend, but they could just spend time with God. And for just a moment, could you imagine getting to spend time with God like you spend time with a friend or like a close relative? For me, it's easy to imagine talking to someone like Stefan or to someone like my wife or to a coworker of mine or my neighbor um, or anyone I meet on the street. It's easy because I, I understand that I can categorize it. I can experience that. That's something I know. But for some reason, it feels unnatural to even imagine that we would get to be face to face with God, that we would get that we were even created for that. Just a few chapters into the good world that God had created, something went wrong. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's one rule. Think about that one rule in the garden. And as a result, they died spiritually that day, and they passed that death on to you and to me today. We are all born with a sin nature that makes it so that we are bent towards sin. We are born that way with sin in our hearts. We can't help but be selfish in our ambitions. We can't help but move toward those thoughts and those actions that are against God's good way because we are born with sin in our hearts. From that moment when humanity first sinned, there has been a vast distance between humanity and God. Because sin is what separates us from a holy God. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No amount of our effort could make up the difference. We could never try enough, work enough, or be good enough to enter back into that relationship with a holy God. And you may ask, can't God just let it slide this one time? which really means six billion times. Isn't what we measure as our goodness, is, doesn't that count for something? Isn't that good enough? That's an honest question, and I can empathize with that. But something we need to remember is that God is the one who established his law. He set the bar. He set the standard for all of us to be created at, and we fell from it. We can never, in our own effort, get back up to that standard. And so as a divine judge who administrates justice, 
He has to remain consistent with what is right and what is wrong and what the consequences for those actions. He cannot let sin go unpunished. So what can we do? What, what can be done? If that was God's original design that we would be together with him, what do we do? In the Old Testament, they had the sacrificial system where uh, the priest would offer up uh, a sacrifice that was brought by a person and that would atone for their sin. The Bible tells us uh, that in Hebrews, that under God's law, most everything is purified with blood. It's made clean. And, it continues, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But even for the Hebrew people, there was a limitation to, um, to how long that sacrifice would cover their sins. They would need to offer another sacrifice the next time they messed up, the next time they had a blip in their walk with God, the next time that they would uh, relapse or would, you know, fall in some way or break another commandment that they just learned that they committed and they didn't know it was a thing, but here we are and I have to offer up my, my best cow, Betsy. You know, yeah, they, they had to, it was an ongoing perpetual thing. There was never enough to cover forever. And so God saw the position that they were in, that we were in as humanity. And in his love, he was moved toward action. God would need to step in and save us. We couldn't do it on our own. We still can't do it on our own. And our passage reveals God's plan to save us in John chapter 3, verse 17, where we read that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance and believe in the salvation that he offers through the work of the Messiah. Friend, God doesn't hate you. God loves you. And he loves me. He doesn't want you to stand condemned for your sins. That's why he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to live a perfect human life, to die in our place, dying the death that we all deserve, all so that we could be brought back together with him. Though there was a great distance between us, the cross filled in the gap. The cross paved a way where there was no way. You see, Jesus made a way for us to be with God so that through faith in him, we are saved into God's kingdom. And ultimately, this brings us to the fact that as we embrace this gospel, as, as it brings us back into relationship with God, we are then transformed by his love and his kindness towards us. The gospel changes us. So much so that we discover that the gospel implies, number four, that Jesus' life is revealed in us. Jesus' life is revealed in us. In that last portion of our text, we're offered a striking juxtaposition between those who believe and those who do not. And the only difference 
Catch this. The only difference between a sinner and a saint is belief in Jesus for salvation. There is equal ground at the foot of the cross. Belief is the determining factor. Another verse that sheds some light on this situation is Romans 5.18 where it says, Therefore, as one trespass, that one disobedience, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification in life for all men. Which is to say that because of our sin, we stand condemned in the sight of God who maintains a just standard. But in Jesus, because of his blood poured out for us on the cross, we can stand as people acquitted. As people set free, not because of anything we've done, but because of all of who he is and all that he has done. Because we put our faith and trust in his work for forgiveness of sin. Jesus paid the full price for all of our sin. Everyone, past, present, and future. So that we could enter into that flourishing life that God has for us in his kingdom. John 3.21 says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice their works are not carried out in and by themselves or in some other person or institution or, or country that they live in or some worldview or anything else. All their works are done in God. Which means that as we embrace the gospel and we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our lives begin to show Jesus' life in us. We're no longer defined by the consequences of our sin and our condemnation. Rather, we become defined by the God who made a way where there was no way to save us from our sin and lead us into the life that he offers to us by grace. Because through faith in Jesus, we are saved into God's kingdom. Now, there is much more that we could lift out of this passage. And we could, we could have a whole small group meeting talking about just one of those verses. But I want to ask you that second question that I asked earlier. Why does the gospel still matter? Do you think the gospel still matters? If you've said yes to Jesus in the past, do you still believe that it matters? I would submit to you today that it does. Because the reason the gospel still matters is because there are times along our journey when we forget. And when really we come to a place of unbelief, just like the people of Israel. And we grumble, and we moan, and we, we throw back all of God's blessings into his face and say, you haven't given me anything. When really he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us the gospel. He's given us the good news, which should permeate all of our lives. And so even though we should 
personally know it, not just up here, not just in what we think, not just in what we know, but we should really know it in the core of our being, in our hearts, that transforming knowledge, and we should be living it out. We need to be reminded of the gospel and to embrace that beauty of God's grace for us today. Not just the grace that he had for us all those years ago, whether it was a year ago, five years ago, 10, 20, 30, or more years ago, God has an encounter for us today. And maybe you're here for the first time. Thank you so much for joining us with this online church experience. We're, we're still adjusting to things, and we're still figuring it out. But I don't believe it's an accident that you found our church this morning in all the host of churches uh, hosting online experiences I believe you needed to hear the gospel this morning. If you've never heard the gospel, if you've never said yes to Jesus, everyone at some point feels the effects of the evil that's in this world. I think we can all agree that we are seeing that played out daily in our newsfeed. We're seeing uh, from both sides. There's, There's destruction and there's unrest and unruliness, and we really, we need the gospel to intervene. We need God to speak. We need God to step in. But friends, if you have never said yes to Jesus, if you've never received that gift of salvation, I just want to invite you, as Pastor Stefan comes up, and we prepare to respond in worship this morning I just want to encourage you that the Father's arms are open wide. That's a line from the song that we're about to sing. And um, today is Father's Day. We didn't really mention it earlier. Oops. (laughs) Happy Father's Day, all you fathers. But what an amazing testimony that we would be talking about the gospel today that we would get to talk about the good news that God's father heart for you and for me is that he loves us and he wants to be with us. And he did everything in his power to make that possible. And so as we sing this closing song, as we respond, I just want to invite you to have a conversation with Jesus, to talk to him about what you're going through, where you're at, Because he is willing to meet you there. He is willing to hear your hurts, to minister to that pain. Mm. He wants to meet with you. So wherever you're at, you can close your eyes as we sing. You can pray out loud as we sing. You can just have an honest conversation with God. But wherever you're at, let's respond to him. Let's respond to the gospel. Let's repent and believe the gospel together again this morning.